Recently, I've been reflecting on how much a part of Western civilization the Bible occupies. Its stories, images, and language permeate our culture. David slaying Goliath is a common way to describe the upset of a powerhouse sports team. Or who hasn't heard an excruciating moral decision referred to in terms of Solomon's wisdom when he was determining which of two women was mother to a certain baby? And how often have great orators pondered a deep reality using Pilate's question, what is truth? Art, music, literature, drama, film, and even news reporting rely on such images to evoke a certain response from readers, knowing that a core of our civilization is at least familiar with biblical stories, whether or not they could actually locate them in a Bible. The Exodus event, its larger-than-life characters, its dramatic crescendos, and its language are very much a part of our culture's group consciousness and deeply embedded in almost every liberation movement around the world. Set my people free is the refrain that captures this event, and the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey is a cause for hope. This lesson focuses our attention on the archetypal journey from slavery to freedom and from certain death to the promise of life. It invites us to consider not only what we are being freed from, but also the kind of God who is able both to liberate and to shape a new community. And it's that last point, the kind of God that is revealed in Exodus, that I would first like to focus on. One of my favorite passages in the book of Exodus is found in chapter 3, in the initial encounter between Moses and God at the burning bush. You're very familiar with the scene. While tending his father-in-law's flocks, Moses is drawn to examine more closely a bush that is burning but not consumed. Removing his sandals, he stands on sacred ground and listens with a downcast face, with fearful awe of what is happening. And here's my favorite part. God speaks plainly to Moses, but the words are not about Moses. The words are about Moses' people who are enslaved in Egypt. Now, while I read these words, I'm going to emphasize the verbs that are used, and I'd like to ask you to pay close attention to them. The Lord said, I have witnessed the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their cry of complaint against their slave drivers. So I know well what they are suffering. Therefore, I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and lead them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verbs are action words. We learned that when we were in primary school. Well, God uses lots of verbs here because God is about taking action. God has witnessed, God has heard, knows well, has come down, will rescue, and will lead them out. The God that Moses encountered is not complacent and uninvolved, kind of watching from afar and hoping these creatures of divine design don't mess things up. No, the God of the burning bush is eagerly concerned, engaged, actively involved on behalf of those who are suffering. 
God has not simply observed the suffering, but knows it well. And that's a major difference between the God of Moses and the gods of the Egyptian rulers. God recognizes pain and shows compassion. And God provides a way to a fuller life by coming down and leading out. Remember when I said that God's words were about Moses' people in Egypt? Well, another item to consider is that in the passage we just read together, God calls Moses' people, my people. One of my favorite passages of all of scripture is from the first letter of Peter, where the author describes in chapter two, that in Jesus Christ, we're being built into a spiritual house. We are like the slaves of ancient Egypt, called out of darkness. And then he goes on to say, once you were no people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are God's people, not because of any merit of our own, but because of the mercy of God, a mercy that brings us into the light and gives us an identity. Throughout all the pages of all of our Bibles, God consistently identifies with the poor or the suffering, the people on the margins. And God's expectation is that the covenant people will do the same, providing for the widow and orphan, welcoming the alien. Throughout the laws of the Pentateuch, we find all kinds of practical examples of how this care in the community can take shape and how clearly it demonstrates God's own commitment to the poor as well. And I'd like to give you a few examples. Leviticus chapter 19 verses 9 and 10 describes the custom of gleaning. This is what it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not be so thorough that you reap the field to its very edge, nor shall you glean the stray ears of grain. Likewise, you shall not pick your vineyard bare, nor gather up the grapes that have fallen. These things you shall leave for the poor and the alien. I, the Lord, am your God. Now, this was long before the days of commercial harvesting where every plant can be just stripped bare in an instant. Hand farming allowed for some of the yield to be left behind, and these leavings were not to be gathered until those at the margins of society had their time to harvest. And the story of Ruth, for example, contains just such an instance where such gleaning provided salvation from starving for Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. In Leviticus 19.34, we read, You shall treat the alien who resides with you no differently than the natives born among you. Have the same love for him as for yourself, for you too were once aliens in the land of Egypt. And then perhaps more poignantly in Exodus chapter 23, verse 9, God's newly formed people are reminded, You shall not oppress an alien. You well know how it feels to be an alien, since you were once aliens yourselves in the land of Egypt. Recall that earlier in Exodus, we read that God knew well what the slaves suffered, not just in their physical hardship, but in their alienation in Egypt. And so each generation who follows this God is invited to be in touch with that feeling of being alienated and in need. Really, that's part of the purpose of the Passover meal also, to relive the events in such a way that all who participate actually feel that they've passed through the waters into safety, into the desert where they encounter God. When God's people in ancient times, and contemporary people as well, get in touch with experiences of alienation, we become better able to see ourselves as pilgrims. We become better able to recognize the plight of all who make a journey from isolation to inclusion, from need to plenty, or from danger to safety. When I was much younger, just finishing high school and into my first year of college, I had the opportunity to work with refugees from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, and a few years later with refugees who came to our shores from Cuba. 
I grew up in western Arkansas, where Camp Chaffee, just outside of our town, became a resettlement center during both waves of arrivals. In working with the Catholic Conference Refugee and Resettlement Office, I learned so much. I set in on interviews where skilled translators helped individuals and families unravel their stories of survival and help them to find hope for the future. Their tears and their courage time after time brought me to tears and led me to prayer and to action. I wondered if I could have responded to the small windows of opportunities that they described to leave for safer shores, knowing I may never be able to return to my homeland or be reunited with other family members. I marveled at their patience as they waited in line for hours in Arkansas summer heat just to have an interview and get a process started for resettlement. I was so touched to see so many of them make valiant efforts to help their fellow refugees who weren't coping well or who had not managed to bring anything of their past with them. These people became anchors for one another. And among the Asian groups, it didn't matter if they were Vietnamese, Cambodian, or Laotian. They shared the experience of being aliens in this very strange land, and they managed so often to overcome cultural differences as they helped one another. In both instances, as these refugees arrived in our country in the 1970s and 1980s, I noticed that learning their stories was the beginning of a common bond. When these people became people, and not just emblematic of problems that needed to be solved, walls began to break down, and relationships could form, and really the best of our values could rise to the surface. Now, let's return again to the Exodus story itself. If you're like many people, you have to wonder what in the world happened in those 40 years of wilderness wandering. Basically, the 40 years itself is not a big issue. This number is symbolic of a very long time, the length of a generation. So what was that time all about? Well, I think a number of things are important to consider. First of all, it's been suggested that the desert or wilderness experience was a time of modeling, or better yet, remodeling a people. Now you know from your own experience that you cannot remodel an existing structure such as a kitchen until you do some demolition. And it may sound rather simplistic, but the same need presents itself with the people who escaped from slavery. They couldn't simply enter into a new reality without shaking off the old realities that had weighed them down. So in order for this ragtag group of slaves to take on a new shared identity, they had to be willing to let go of that old one. Some things had to be destroyed, chief among them that slave mentality that had defined them during generations of hard labor in Egypt. For those in slavery, their taskmasters represented the political rulers of Egypt. And to some extent, those same rulers were gods who controlled their lives. But the God of Exodus, however, is the God of freedom, and that was going to take some getting used to. I think we could come up with numerous examples around the world in more recent times when the end of slavery is not accepted as instantly transformative. In fact, the mentality of slavery probably takes much more than a generation to shake. But this is part of the task of this time in the wilderness. We probably have heard the expression, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. And this certainly seems to have been true for those who find themselves in the wilderness without a map and without a clear sense of what will happen next. They grumble and complain against Moses about their conditions. Would that we had died at the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt as we sat by our flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. But you had to lead us into this desert to make the whole community die of famine. Relying on the gifts of manna and of quail and water, 
is training and learning to trust in God's care for this newly forming community. Now, while it may sound ridiculous, it took great courage to shift allegiance from a harsh taskmaster who took away even the basic elements needed to make bricks to shift that allegiance to a God who provides for daily needs. In the former setting, at least they knew what to expect. But in the new desert setting, complete trust was all that would work. That's why the key is the sequence of events that unfolded on Mount Sinai, the giving of the law and the forging of a covenant. God initiated a relationship with this once enslaved people, and the core of their identity is always connected to that Sinai moment. It is only in the context of a loving relationship with the divine liberator that these slaves can begin to embrace their freedom as God's people and not the people of Pharaoh. Sometimes I wonder if we can ever fully grasp the significance of God's words from atop the mountain. We sometimes experience these laws as restrictive and negative. The commandments even have become the subject of debate and political gamesmanship. But that's not how these people in the desert experienced God's intervention and the gift of the law. They saw these instructions as signs of a new form of life that would be dominated on the one hand by love and devotion to God, and then on the other hand by caring for relationships within the community. God was in fact showing them a way to a fuller life than they ever could have imagined. By living in harmony with God and with others, they could discover more deeply their identity as God's people. They could embrace more fully the freedom that was being offered to them, and they could afford to hope for a brighter future. What we call the Ten Commandments actually became the governing laws as Israel shifted from a nomadic lifestyle to a more sedentary agricultural lifestyle. So even in the desert, God's people experienced being prepared for this new life. And yet we know that not all who entered the desert were able to enter the land that was promised. Your commentary deals with the description of Moses' death in the book of Deuteronomy. What I find really wonderful is that in chapter 33 of Deuteronomy, we're given a kind of poetic commentary on Israel's fortunes, tribe by tribe, presented in the form of a patriarchal blessing. There is no bitterness about what Moses did or did not receive, and no disappointment in Israel's remembrance of the journey and the time of adjusting to a new life. Instead, there is an overall tone of thanksgiving and wonder that God would have intervened at all, much less been so generous. It says there is no God like the God of the darling who rides the heavens in his power and rides the skies in his majesty. How fortunate you are, O Israel. Undoubtedly, the story of Israel's liberation, wandering in the desert, and then entry into Canaan is a story composed long after the events transpired. These various strands of tradition weave together to show us a people who had reflected on their past and found in each step the hand of God to lead and to guide them. People the world over migrate for many reasons, because of oppression like the Israelites, or because of physical need or the simple desire for a better life for their families. In all of these circumstances, this time of movement can be a time when God prepares them for what lies ahead and equips them for the new way of being. For those of us who are able to stay more securely in our homelands, God may be preparing us to welcome the alien and treat them as all native born, as we heard in those earlier passages. Now that's a true challenge in a world that is alive with movement. But in prayer, we can ask for that loving response that even Israel had to offer when it became a more sedentary nation and others migrated there for all the reasons we've already listed. I've never had to leave my homeland, 
but I did choose earlier in my life to leave my part of the country to live elsewhere while I studied and prepared for my return to Arkansas where I hoped to minister. Small insecurities of new surroundings and unknown expectations began to settle when I started to feel accepted in these new places. When people asked me about myself and my own journey, and I was able to share that. Perhaps with such simple starts as these, something as simple as talking with a new neighbor from another part of the country, we can become more aware that even today, God leads and guides people on journeys that can become pilgrimages of faith. If we are growing in faith, in all actuality, we too are called to be on the move. We're always being called to leave behind what oppresses us, whether that be something external and beyond our control or something more of our own making, like addictions or false expectations. We are invited to identify our needs and to rest assured that God hears and knows well what we are experiencing. We can even name our desires, knowing that God is immensely generous and wants nothing more than to help us realize our desires as they more closely draw us into a deepening relationship with the God who frees us. The pattern of enslavement, liberation, and covenant that we see in the events of Exodus is an archetypal pattern found in Scripture. For example, the woman at the well was enslaved to her own imperfections and sinfulness. Jesus' words of truth to her were an offer of liberation. And only then was she able to enter into the covenant of love that she witnessed to all over Samaria. Or take the story of Paul, enslaved as it were, to preconceived ideas about how God could work in the world, liberated through a vision of the risen Christ, and then entering into a deeper understanding of the covenant as he embraced a more universal mission to preach the good news. That pattern is not only repeated over and over in Scripture. It happens every day, even in the 21st century. Perhaps as you journey together in this study, you'll discover the pattern emerging in your lives too. Thank you.